Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Professor Peter Leeson of George Mason University and author of The Invisible Hook. Peter talks about his work regarding pirate economics, how economics was prominent during the pirate era, the differences and similarities between Adam Smith's invisible hand and what Peter called the invisible hook, the economics of the Jolly Roger flag and how this flag act as a signal to minimise economic risk and to maximise profits, as well as the economics of democracy, in which pirates were very much a democratic society, which effectively predated democracy today, and how pirates regulated negative externalities when there was no authoritative figure. Check out the show notes and all the links mentioned in this episode at economicrockstar.com forward slash Peter Leeson or visit economicrockstar.com and type in pirate in the search bar and it should get you directly to the page with all the links. Hope you enjoy the show and don't forget to drop some comments at economicrockstar.com. I really love to hear from you. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. If you'd like to support the show and become a patron of the Economic Rockstar podcast, please visit patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and in the search bar, type in Economic Rockstar to find out more. I was just getting started and it was, you know, wonderful for me to have somebody who was open to the idea that you can do economics in a different way. Uh, just because there aren't equations and, and coefficient estimates doesn't mean that you're not doing economics. There was a, uh, an early form of social insurance, a sort of workers' compensation system among pirates, where if you lost a particular limb in battle or engaged with a, with a prize, you would receive a certain amount out of, a, out of the crew's common stock to compensate you, which was used to obviously incentivize pirates to give it their all during battle. Even apart from the from the kind of unemployment problem that the end of wars in the period would generate, there was a tremendous economic incentive. I mean, a, a successful pirate could earn in a single successful taking of a, of a prize 10, 20, 30 times as much as a, a comparable legitimate merchant seaman would make in a year. So, I mean, there were enormous financial rewards, but there were, of course, also corresponding risks. Never miss an episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast. Visit economicrockstar.com, submit your name and email, and you will get each episode straight to your inbox. Hi, Frank Comer here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar podcast. I am so honored to have Peter Deeson join me today. Hi, Peter. Welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Peter Leeson is Duncan Black Professor of Economics and Law at George Mason University. He is also a senior fellow at the F.A. Hayek Programme for the Advanced Study of Philosophy, Politics and Economics and North American Editor of Public Choice. Formerly, Peter was Visiting Professor of Economics at University of Chicago, Visiting Fellow in Political Economy and Government at Harvard University 
and F.A. Hayek Fellow at the London School of Economics. Peter is author of The Invisible Hook, The Hidden Economics of Pirates, and Anarchy Unbound, Why Self-Governance Works Better Than You Think. Peter can be found at peterleeson.com. Peter, what attracted me initially to your work was this whole idea of the economics of pirates and a very eye-catching book title, The Invisible Hook. But can I go back to your earlier beginnings, if you wanted me to say this, about your interest in economics, and I'm sure you have an interest in piracy, and how did the two of these come together? Sure. Uh, so I got into economics through Austrian economics, the work of Ludwig von Mises in particular. And, of, and you know, the work of Austrians and, and Mises especially has really, really influenced the way that I think about economics and the way that I think about the world more generally. And one of the things that I thought was great and really captured my, my interest and attention when I was pretty young, I was a teenager at the time, uh, was this idea that you can find in, in Mises that economics applies to everything, all human behavior, not just you know traditional behaviors in, in what we ordinarily call markets with dollars and cents, but that it's, it's, it's a universal way of trying to understand and appreciate human behavior more generally. Um, and that ultimately, I think, has you know, contributed to the way in which I ended up doing my work and sort of the, the application of economic reasoning to some areas that are not traditionally considered by at least most economists. Pirates is sort of in the intermediate ground in terms of that. Obviously, pirates were, well, obviously, from my, my perspective, I should say, were economic actors, but they were criminals. And so as criminals, you know, their criminal behavior, some have suggested, you know, is not very amenable to the economic way of thinking. But Gary Becker pioneered research demonstrating that that wasn't so. And I consider Becker, by the way, as working in the same, the same tradition as, as Mises, although oftentimes distinctions are drawn between them, and there are important distinctions. They are brought together and share this important commonality of seeing the, the economic way of thinking as an engine for understanding human behavior more broadly. And you mentioned two pioneers in economics, Von Mises and Gary Becker, and a lot of people might not have put those together at all, but they're <laughs> quite, as we all know, Gary Becker is the grandfather of Chicago School of Economic Thinking, and you have been a visiting professor there. Was that an intentional decision to, for you to go there, given your following of this type of work? It was. It was. I was very fortunate to be invited to be uh, to visit there for a year as part of Becker's Center on Chicago Price Theory. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, as you mentioned, it, it, they seem like odd bedfellows, Austrian economics and, and the Chicago School. But there's so much, in my mind, uh, in any way, there's so much that they have in common. And, and I view a lot of the work that I'm engaged in is trying to sort of marry the two influences. You know, as I mentioned, so this, this center was called the, the Center on Chicago Price Theory. Price theory is central to Austrian economics. And Karl Menger was one of the founders of the, of the Marginal Revolution, one of the revolutionaries who introduced marginal analysis in the, the very beginnings of the price theoretic approach. Um, to economics. So there's that natural connection. And then there's this other connection that I mentioned a little, uh, a few minutes ago, you know, that both perspectives see economics as applying to all human behavior. That was something that, that Becker's work demonstrated very powerfully and something that he emphasized a lot uh, in his writings and in his talks. And it's something that also shines through very strongly uh, in, in Mises' work, as I mentioned. 
So to me, the, you know, the two, the two naturally go together. There are important differences. I think that personally, I think some of the differences which are methodological have been very much overblown and really aren't that important. You know, the central stuff is, is viewing price theory as an engine and thinking about all human behavior in terms of that engine. And they're, you know, they're, they're on the same page. And I've recently come out in an episode on Hayek's work regarding knowledge being a discovery procedure. And that entrepreneurial knowledge is this discovery process that they particularly go through. One of your papers that you've recently written on pirates, and you credited Stephen Levitt for allowing you to have it published in the Journal of Political Economy, even though you admit that there was no empirical analysis done. But where do you stand regarding the scientific approach to economic thinking? Yeah, so you know, the first thing with respect to that to that article, I, I am extremely grateful to to Steve for having published it. Primarily, not because it didn't have empirical analysis. That's something I'm going to come back to in a minute, but because its form of empirical analysis um, is atypical. You know, there's there are no regressions that are presented. No regression results are presented in that paper, and the form of theoretical analysis that I present is you know what around GMU anyway we call an analytic narrative where you're using basic economic reasoning, but you're using words rather than formalizing it mathematically. Um, so it's, it's been one of the things in my career that I've, I've had different kinds of experiences with uh, in, in the academic publishing process is how various editors and reviewers react to the fact that most, although not all of my work, but most of it does not use formal methods, formal empirical methods or formal mathematical methods. And Especially at, at that point, you know, I, I published that paper almost uh, 10 years ago now. I was just getting started and it was, you know, wonderful for me to have somebody who was open to the idea that you can do economics in a different way. Uh, just because there aren't equations and, and coefficient estimates doesn't mean that you're not doing economics. And so, you know, as I'm very grateful, very grateful to, to Steve for seeing that in the paper. Having said that, so there is an empirical analysis in the paper. The paper is actually predominantly empirical, but it uses, it blends historical research, which I consider to be a form of empirical work, traditional historical research with economic thinking. And that's this, this analytic narrative approach. So you can, you know, you can and should, in my, in my mind, develop testable hypotheses, predictions that come out of your theory. But then there's a host of different ways to take the data, so to speak, to that theory. Uh, one of them is to run regressions, which is great and works very well for answering certain types of empirical questions. But it, it's not great for answering all kinds of empirical questions. And in some cases, we're limited by the absence of data that we could use in traditional regression analysis. So there, that doesn't mean that there aren't facts available that can help us to illuminate the theory to understand it better. It just means we have to get a little bit more creative uh, or unconventional, at least for an economist, in terms of finding those facts and presenting that evidence. Yeah, this is a fantastic insight into what you're doing and the thinking that goes on because having that particular narrative that you work on at GMU, Robin pretty much hinted at this type of thinking as well when he wrote his book on brain emulations because there's, he uses the theoretical thinking in terms of predicting the possible future path of the economy. Mm -hmm. But... um. Just going back to my earlier question, why piracy? So 
I have, you know, as I think many children the world over, I have, I have an abiding interest in pirates from a very young age. When I was in uh, elementary school, my parents took me to Disney World, and my favorite ride by far was the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. And I got this little ring at the gift shop afterwards. It was a little silver skull, and it had little ruby eyes. And I had that ring. I actually don't know where it is now, but I had that ring for forever. Obviously, I didn't. I didn't wear it as an adult, but uh, I loved it. I treasured it. Can I and, interrupt uh, you there, sorry, Peter? Sure. How old is Pirates of Caribbean? I thought that was only relatively recent. Oh well, I don't know how old it is, but it was there when I was. It was there when I was eight. So it's you know at oh. least thirty or so years old, I'd say. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I thought you, know, you were some I, kind of child prodigy for a moment. <laughs> no. no, I just I just uh, loved pirates, and so it became. I started doing a lot of work on uh, the economics of self governance. So how it is that private institutions do or do not emerge and, and do or do not function to facilitate social cooperation where traditional government institutions for that purpose are lacking. And obviously, criminals sometimes exist in societies, uh, and when they do, those societies always lack the ability to rely on government because they're outlaws by definition. And so in the course of doing this work on self-governance, it occurred to me that you know pirates would be a natural a natural community, because I knew a little bit about it historically, you know, would be a natural community to sort of examine, examine self-governance institutions. And that led me down a, a many-year path of basically reading everything I could about um, what historians have written on pirates to try and understand how they, how they operated and what they did. And I found a lot of great historical work. But what that work was lacking in my mind uh, was a, a sort of sensible economic approach. So a, a non-trivial part of the the history work that's been done on pirates has a kind of, for lack of a better word, Marxist flavor to it. And pirates are, are often sort of presented as social revolutionaries. And I think that there's some, I think that's right, but I don't think that that was what their motivations were about. And that sort of approach doesn't give you insight into how their, their societies actually functioned. And so that's where, where I think economics has something to contribute. And that's what I tried to do. Right. So your title, The Invisible Hook, how different is that? Because we're all familiar with Adam Smith's Invisible Hand, his description of how self-interest of a rational thinker would lead to some degree of cooperation with another in order to fulfill their own particular self-interests. How does that relate to a pirate and your title, The Invisible Hook? Well, <laughs> the the title hit me uh, randomly one day, and I really, really liked it. And I'm, uh, I'm great title. A lot of other people have been very complimentary about it, so I feel like it was the it was the right title. <laughs> but there are some important differences. So I talk about this in the introduction of the book. So as you mentioned, you know, Smith's idea is that each individual, by pursuing their own self interest, is led as if by an invisible hand to promote the interests of others in society. And with it, so if you think about pirates ships and pirate communities more generally, their, their societies, as, you know, internally. My, the idea of the invisible hook was a pun on the invisible hand with the idea being that pirates within their communities pursuing their own self-interest end up promoting the cooperation of the pirate society more generally because, as I describe in my work, they end up generating these um, sort of institutions of, of governance that actually make piracy possible, make, make pirating as a, as a mode of living possible. 
The important distinction, of course, is that precisely because the invisible hook worked so well inside of pirate communities, their cooperation meant that they were able to better prey on society, legitimate society outside of them. Um, And so there, pirate self-interest seeking did not promote the interests of of legitimate uh, individuals, but it did promote the interests of of the members of pirate society. So that's the connection and the difference. Okay, so even though they would be considered rational actors, because our perception of pirates is that they're somewhat irrational, possibly in their external behavior, maybe rational internally, um, but essentially they're all profit maximizers. And that seems to be the same for a self-interested person that Adam Smith has revealed in his book. Yes, yes, for with for pirates, yeah, but not for you know every time pirate basically when pirate society and when, when pirate firms so think about a pirate ship as a pirate firm it was really also a kind of floating society but focus on it for a firm for a moment any strategies that pirates adopted to facilitate profit making within the firm to the extent that it was successful benefited pirates that's the invisible hand component. But it hurt other people, right? Because when pirates are more effective at plundering, people are getting plundered more outside of their society, the legitimate ships that they're preying on. So that's the the sort of knife's edge for that. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice sweetener for somebody to go straight into this book to explore this whole perception or whole idea about piracy or pirates, as you should say. But in, in the book, you've listed a number of teams and one of them, is the pirate code, the hierarchy. And my perception initially was that you had one core pirate that is almost like an autocratic figure. But you Mm -hmm. suggest that it's a democratic process in which this pirate actually ends up being the the boss as as such of the ship or the captain of the ship. Yeah, exactly. I mean, pirates, so they, they, the Caribbean pirates of the early 18th century pioneered a system of constitutional democracy complete with checks and balances that looks very similar to the, at least on paper, the sort of structure of, of government in, say, the contemporary United States, which is in stark contrast to the ships from which these guys came. Most pirates were drawn from the merchant marine, and so they were on these merchant ships. And merchant ships had this had an autocratic structure that more closely resembles what you described. So there was, you know, a captain and then some officers below him, and the captain and the officers wielded all the power. And um, the crew members were, a not insignificant amount of the time, basically taken advantage of by the captain and the officers. And I I sort of describe a a variety of ways in which that was possible. But so when pirates entered piracy, they would, would, you know, leave a, a merchant ship and join a pirate crew. They were especially keen on taking steps to try and limit the uh, the officer's authority. And so it's not surprising, given that background, that what they did was instead of having an autocratic captain, they had a democratically elected captain. And instead of having all of the power concentrated in the hands of the captain, pirates divided the power up among uh, several officers on their ship in a kind of system of checks and balances, as I mentioned a minute ago. So this isn't to say that pirate captains did not have important authority. They did. Uh, when a pirate ship was engaged in battle, when it was seeking a prize, the captain wielded autocratic control because it's a kind of, you can think of, you know, battling a prize as like a military expedition and you can't have people voting in the middle of a, of a war, you know, or middle, middle of a conflict, you know, over who's going to shoot the cannon and who's going to, you know, stab the guy over here on the right and so on. So the captain directed all that stuff. 
But most of the time, pirates were not actually, you know, in battle. They were searching for prizes. And there, this other officer on a pirate ship called the Quartermaster, who was also democratically elected by the rest of the crew, he actually had a lot of the important authorities that would normally be in the hands of a captain on, for instance, a merchant ship. So by popularly electing and deposing these guys, so if, if if a captain or a quartermaster or one of the lower officers did anything that violated any of the rules that the crew had established, they would vote him out of command. And what examples of code would there be? Of their code? Yeah, that they might violate. Oh, sure. So the uh, pirate code, the, the, they actually you know, wrote these things down in constitutions. They tended to be pretty simple, but they had you know, a dozen or so provisions. And the provisions are pretty much along the lines that you would expect if you and a group of 100 guys were going to be floating out in the middle of the water with nobody else around and no government to rely on. What sort of rules would you construct? Um, and that's pretty much what the rules look like. So they had primarily rules in the first place against theft aboard the ship and against violence uh, between crew members. They had uh, dispute resolution mechanisms that were nonviolent or at least nonviolent in terms of taking place on the ship, partly because if a, if a brawl broke out between pirates, if there was some conflict, you could you know tear the ship apart. You could literally destroy it, which would prevent pirates from being able to cooperate on their ship. Um, so rules against theft and against violence, they had, uh, rules stipulating how much pay, of course, each pirate would get, uh, various members got different shares of the loot and it was important to sort of put in writing and make explicit to crew members how much they were supposed to be getting because one of the abuses that pirates in their pre-piratical lives as merchant sailors that they suffered on merchant ships was, were, uh, was captains basically taking advantage of them, docking their pay and stealing from them and so on. The same thing with respect to food. So there are rules about how much, what, what people's provisions were supposed to be like, which is, you know, seems sort of like a trivial thing. But when you are away for many months at sea, your food rations are a really, really important thing. And so that was, again, stipulated similar to pay. There was a, uh, an early form of social insurance, a sort of workers' compensation system among pirates, where if you lost a particular limb in battle or engaged with a, with a prize, you would receive a certain amount out of, a, out of the crew's common stock to compensate you, which was used to obviously incentivize pirates to give it their all during battle. Uh, then there were a host of, of rules that would regulate you know, what economists would call externalities on the ship. So a lot of things, because these, are, these ships were small, the, the, ships, the, the ships that pirates used were previously merchant ships. And so those ships typically had a dozen or so uh, crew members on them. And pirates would pack, you know, a hundred plus men onto these things. So it was very cramped quarters. So especially in that kind of an environment, if one pirate does something, for example, if he, if he lights his pipe in the, uh, in the hold where the gunpowder is, he could blow the crew to smithereens. And so pirates needed to create rules that would regulate that kind of behavior. Um, so they would have rules, for example, restricting where you could smoke. And they would have rules restricting when and where you could drink because uh, an an intoxicated pirate crew was typically a less effective one. And so in order to make sure the crew could get together to cooperate, uh, they needed to regulate drinking. So it was a host of rules along those lines. That's a fantastic example of negative externalities because this is something you probably wouldn't even think of in terms of what happens on a pirate ship because obviously they're in danger if they are drunk or uncooperative or even if they happen to ransack the ship in terms of getting a higher share of the loot that they've taken. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. You mentioned earlier, and I did interrupt you, about your trip to Disneyland where you had a pirate ring. You got your Pirates of the Caribbean ring. Yeah. And speaking about rings, I've thought it was a, one of the most unique ways of dedicating your book to your then girlfriend with a marriage proposal. <laughs> How did that yeah. work out? It worked out well. We uh, were happily married. Um, actually, our, our anniversary is coming up soon. So, yeah, it was it was great. She really liked it, and it was um, a lot of fun for me. So it was it was terrific. Fantastic. How did piracy begin, or when did it begin? Because my understanding of piracy in the sensationalist sense would be like that of the Captain Jack Sparrow or Captain Blackbeard. And then sure. with the ones we have at the moment, the Somali pirates, they're quite different. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very. So, I mean, piracy in general is as is, is old as uh, maritime activity is. You know, all piracy is is theft on the high seas. So as long as man has been going to sea and other people have had things uh, worth taking, there have been guys out there trying to steal it from them. You know, there's a great, so ancient uh, historical example of... Uh, of Caesar, who was who was famously captured by pirates and tortured, or at least mistreated, allegedly. So we, we know it's it's extraordinarily old. The piracy that I focus on is early 18th century pirates, and those are the the pirates that you refer to. You know, those are the pirates of the Caribbean. There, that's the Blackbeards and the and the Black Bart Robertses and the Calico Jack Rackham, which is the historical pirate that seems to have been the template for Johnny Depp's Captain Jack Sparrow character. So those guys, you know, the heyday of Caribbean piracy, it was really only a decade-long period, you know, from about 1716 to about 1726. Now, there was there was piracy happening on either sides of that, but that's sort of the, the heyday in which these guys were uh, were terrorizing the, terrorizing the seas. And a lot of them, what historians think may have, have precipitated this particular burst of, of piracy that is now very famous – was the end of a war, the war of the Spanish succession. And so a lot of guys after these wars had ended, and this was a, a pattern that can be observed um, previously. So prior to the 18th century pirates, there, there are these 17th century pirates called the Buccaneers. And in any event, the, the pattern seems to be similar there, where after war, a lot of guys who had basically earned a living uh, for many years at sea engaging with targets on whatever the enemy military was were unemployed and didn't have a lot of good prospects. And what they had sort of become good at was basically, you know, attacking other ships on the water. And so when the war ended, you had this, this large surplus of uh, at least temporarily unemployed sailor labor. And so a lot of those guys ended up taking to piracy. So there was an economic incentive to piracy. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, even apart from the from the kind of unemployment problem that the end of wars in the period would generate, there was a tremendous economic incentive. I mean, a, a successful pirate could earn in a single successful taking of a, of a prize 10, 20, 30 times as much as a, a comparable legitimate merchant seaman would make in a year. So, I mean, there were enormous financial rewards, but there were, of course, also corresponding risks. Is it true that they buried their treasure? Because it doesn't necessarily make sense unless they have to hide it uh, in order to come back at another time. Yeah, you know, I didn't really find so I didn't find much about that in the history of what I read, other than than the folklore stories. I don't. I highly doubt it. Certainly was not a regular practice. So let me say that I highly doubt that large sums were 
were buried, it wouldn't really make a whole lot of sense to. I mean, pirates didn't didn't live very long, and they had this kind of um, little outlaw community sort of that set up shop complete with, you know, sort of gray market guys like, you know, um, workers in brothels and taverns and so on who would set up shop at their land bases. And, and I think pirates mostly, you know, blew their money there um, or died before they had to ch- a chance to spend most of it. The whole idea of having a flag to Jolly Roger, because I know based on some information that you have since you were 17, a tattoo on your arm. Mm-hmm. And for a 17 year old to have whatever about having a pirate tattoo, but having it <laughs> resemble a supply and demand curve with the Jolly Roger, the crossbones. That's something, yeah. that's something else. <laughs> no skulls on the tattoo, but I guess I could easily modify it. But there are crossbones, are there? No, there's just it's just supply and demand. So it looks kind of like crossbones because of the crossing curves, the intersecting curves. Um, but it's just a just a straight economics graph. But it looks like you know the, the the intersection looks like the crossed bones that, as you mentioned, graced many a pirate flag um, with their with their Jolly Roger. And is there a significance to this flag? I know everything like a flag is a sign has a signaling effect. Yeah, so I argue that um, that the the pirate, you know, it, it, there's kind of a puzzle here. A lot of things, a lot of behaviors that pirates engaged in present puzzles because on the surface they don't seem to make a whole hell of a lot of sense. You know, it seems like superficially at least, if you are engaged in criminal activity and you know the authorities are out to get you, and the authorities were after after pirates in the early 18th century, the last thing you would want to do would be to you know create a special flag that indicates your criminal status and and proudly display it as you sail around. (laughs) So it seems kind of odd. And so I argue that in the first place, pirates didn't just sail around with the, with the Jolly Roger up. They used it at a particular moment in time um, because when they were engaging prey, because it helped them to, as you mentioned, operate, it helped them to signal the fact that they were pirates as opposed to these other sorts of, um, of, I don't want to call them warships. They were, they were basically warships. I'll call them warships. Other sorts of, of ships that were on the sea that had guys with guns who were out stopping merchant ships, who were in fact legitimate. A lot of them were, were Coast Guard vessels. So this is the era of mercantilism. And um, you know various countries would employ pirate-like crews, although they, they technically had these papers from their government saying they were p- permitted to do so, to sail around in waters where smugglers would come. Uh, come through to stop them and to interrogate them and to seize any any cargo that might be being smuggled illegally. So really the only thing that separated pirates from these guys was the fact that these guys had an official letter from their government saying that it was legal activity. The difficulty, the thing was that these Coast Guard vessels in particular, because they were legitimate vessels, were constrained in their ability to uh, attack a, a ship that they were coming up to. So, you know, if you're a merchant ship on the water and you see a ship approaching you that looks sort of ominous, on the one hand, it could be a Coast Guard vessel, which means that you might want to try and flee and run because ultimately, if you get caught by the Coast Guard vessel, they can rough you up, but they can't sort of murder everyone in your, in your ship, for example, in cold blood. The, the law didn't allow that. But if it was a pirate attacker, you know, the pirates were obviously not constrained by the law. They were outlaws already. And so they could and, in fact, did slaughter crews that uh, entirely that resisted them. So it was important for pirates to be able to communicate that they had this stronger punishment power if you tried to resist them compared to the Coast Guards. And a merchant ship just looking at potential attackers couldn't tell 
in the absence of a particular flag, whether or not a ship was a Coast Guard vessel and thus legitimate, which they might want to try and run from, or if it was a pirate ship, which they would want to comply with unless they wanted to all die. Uh, and so I argue that pirates developed this flag as a way of communicating their, their piratical status uh, in order to solve that problem. And would pirates have a designated area and some kind of gentleman's agreement with one another in terms of the groups or a kind of occlusive agreement between pirates that they should oh, not, you know, they might wave their flag at each other and say, OK, or would they particularly battle or break that occlusive agreement? I, you mean between ships, between pirate but, ships? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, no, they ha- yes. They, so pi- the pirate community was not large at all. And most pirates knew each other and, in fact, interacted frequently, not only through switching crews, um, but, in fact, also at their land base in, in the Bahamas, they would interact with each other. So they knew each other, and obviously it didn't behoove them if they came across one another in the water to, to open fire on each other. But they did confront this issue that you mentioned of, of needing to communicate that they were a pirate ship. And so, yes, they used the flags for that purpose. And there are very few instances of pirates engaging one another in a battle-like scenario. And, and the cases that do exist seem to have been accidental. You know, they basically stopped fighting once they realized that they were, you know, they were brothers in piracy. Could it be possible for a pirate to go up against a, a, a guard, a coast guard ship, or even a merchant ship imitating a pirate? Because there's an incentive for someone like that to imitate a pirate? There is. So, you know, in order for a signal to be effective, it needs to be more expensive for one of the types than for the other type to use. Mm -hmm. And I argue that the Jolly Roger was an effective signal for pirates because it was cheap for pirates to use. So for pirates, they're already outlaws. If they're caught with a flag on their ship that clearly indicates their outlaw status, they're going to be hanged, and that's going to happen whether or not they have the Jolly Roger on board because their identities were known to authorities. It's not like... It's not like the authorities didn't know who the pirates were. The Coast Guard vessels were different. So Coast Guard vessel, if it went around engaging in its kind of legalized plunder, the sailors on the ship didn't confront the specter of legal punishment, at least for the most part, precisely because they had these papers that indicated they were they were licit. However, if, for example, they had tried to copy the pirate flag, which occasionally a few of them did, if they tried to use the, the pirate flag in order to basically get merchant sailors to surrender to them more easily, basically cashing in on the, on the reputation of pirates, they, they faced an additional cost relative to pirates, which was that if they were caught with a flag on their ship, it would be considered that they had moved from legitimate territory into illicit activity, as evidenced by the fact that they were now flying the pirate flag, which meant that they could be prosecuted under the law. So... For them, it was a, a substantial risk to use the Jolly Roger. And for pirates, there was no, no marginal risk, no additional cost to, to, uh, to doing that. So pirates were more, were, would use, traditionally use the flag, the Jolly Roger flag, and the Coast Guard vessels were, for the most part, deterred from doing so. And that's why the flag was effective. Peter, can I ask you a couple of quickfire questions? Certainly. If you could step into the DeLorean and time travel, what era would you go back to and who would you love to meet? Oh, my gosh, that's a hard question. First, let me say I love DeLorean. So just stepping into a DeLorean would be great for me. <laughs> I tried to convince my wife to let me buy one a few years ago, but she she said no. They're making um, them again. I, I know. I know. Somebody told me they are making them again in, I think, in Texas. And they Texas. have original parts. Oh, I just love the I love the car. That's a really hard question to answer. But I, I think that. 
one person who, who obviously was before my time, who I would so have liked to meet and had conversations with is Ludwig von Mises, as I mentioned, because of the, I mean, he really has, has had the, the largest impact on the way that I, the way that I think. And there are lots of questions uh, that I would like to ask. And, and I would love to know his take on, on what it is that I'm doing and, and where he sees, you know, where he thinks important work needs to be done. If a university, another university, came to you for some advice in terms of the direction or suggestions in terms of how they should approach economics, what advice would you give them? I would give them the advice of having, I would get rid of classes, of, this is going to sound peculiar, but I think I would get rid of most advanced courses in economics, uh, including macroeconomics. My belief is that microeconomics, or what I call price theory, is economics full stop. And that truly internalizing and understanding a few basic principles is the most important thing, not only actually for academic research, but of course also in terms of the, the lay population's understanding. So I would love to see more courses focused on microeconomics at the, at the sort of principles level, um, and then variations, variations on that. And I would it's not that I don't think the other stuff is valuable. I do. I just think that I would happily trade out many of those courses for simply more courses, you know, one more time with feeling that teach price theory. What's your most effective assignment in terms of getting students to understand economics? And do you agree or disagree with multiple choice questions? <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine with multiple choice questions. I, I don't believe basically in testing. So Multiple choice questions are as good as any for me. I, first, so I don't teach uh, any undergraduates anymore. I teach PhD students who, who are already convinced about the economic way of thinking and understand it quite well. But especially when I taught undergraduates, my approach is, which I think is not uncommon, is to simply relate economics to their everyday life. I never prepared, uh, never is probably too strong, but I, I can't think of a time anyway that I, pre that I prepared a lecture coming out of a textbook, or in fact, really prepared a lecture at all, I, I basically would go would go into rooms uh, with a vague topic in mind and ask the students their thoughts about it, get their opinions, and then kind of in a Socratic dialogue, I guess, use the economic way of thinking to try and show them another way of looking at it and to see the benefits of seeing it that way. And I found that to be, uh, to be pretty effective. What recommended books would you have? Because I'm going to recommend your own too, that you have The Invisible Hook and Anarchy Unbound. Yeah. To, uh, to what audience? Oh, to this audience here. Economics. I think there are some, there are a couple of great books. So first I would recommend my colleagues, Peter Betke's book, Living Economics, which is just a, a fabulous, um, it's a, it's an introduction, but there are also many sophisticated aspects to the book, but I think it's a great, a great book for, for readers at almost any level as, a, as an entree into economics. I always would suggest Gary Becker's Economic Approach to Human Behavior. And of course, for the for those who are willing to to put in some serious time, I recommend Ludwig von Mises' Human Action, a treatise on economics, which, in my opinion, is the most important book in economics in the 20th century. And if you were a pirate, Peter, what name would you give yourself? Because Peter Leeson sounds almost like a pirate name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, I don't know what name I would give myself. It'd have to be something to do with... Tobacco or cigars. I'm an avid, uh, I know it's not popular anymore, but I'm an avid smoker. I love cigars. I smoke them constantly every day. So maybe, uh, I don't know, Captain Back Cigar. That's, that's horrible. I don't know. Something, something to do with that. 
I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now. Peter, your latest book, Anarchy Unbound, uses rational choice theory to explore the benefits of self-governance. Does this have some similarity in terms of the self-governance that a pilot ship would have? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so one of the chapters in the book actually considers pirate governance. And it it also considers governance arrangements among other outlaws, so prison gangs, for example. Um, so one of my friends, David Scarbeck, has written a lot of work on self-governance in prison gangs. And um, it turns out that prison gangs often have constitutions and similar governance institutions to, to pirates. So the book the book looks at some of that. The rest of the book is examining in a variety of different contexts where conventional wisdom suggests that self-governance would not be effective. It's examining or it's trying to show that, in fact, it is effective. So the the, liter- the academic literature on self-governance is pretty narrow in the sense that it tends to construe effective self-governance as limited to reputation mechanisms. And uh, what I try to do is to show cases, historical cases, where we have societies that uh, where reputation couldn't have didn't wouldn't work well and show that they nevertheless succeeded in governing themselves providing a reasonable degree of cooperation by supplementing that with alternative governance institutions okay yeah i actually spoke to david scarbeck on a previous podcast episode as well where we talked about these this type of self-governance in a in a prison and you know the, the anarchy unbound book to be honest it's something that I haven't read. I apologize, Peter. How does it deal with the social cooperation that people find themselves in when there's no government? Because it's assumed that we need some degree of parenting from a government, whatever type of government it may be. But we as humans, and this could go back to Gary Becker or Von Mises' idea, whereby we are social, we are social beings, and that's what the economic study is all about. But are you surprised by how cooperative we can become as people? Yes. So I wouldn't say at this point, since I, you know a large, I've been studying self-governance for a long time. So it's very hard to surprise me on that on that dimension. But I think it is surprising to to many people who have you know for good reason have not have not done much have not studied the area. There is a remarkable degree of cooperation that we observe in the in the circumstances where you expect it least. So I think that that is that's what the book is in large part trying to highlight, and I think that is is surprising to a lot of people. And I encourage you to check out the book and see if you know see what you think about some of the some of the cases, because as I mentioned, what I try to do is is to take a case and say, you know, look, here's where conventional wisdom says that we would expect cooperation to be least likely in the absence of government, but in fact, we find it functioning, and it's not you know magic that this happens. I think that. In large part, the payoffs of figuring out a cooperative solution when you face a very dire alternative are very large, right? I mean, if, if it's either solve my problem of self-governance, facilitate some degree of cooperation, or we all perish, the stakes are high. And so in these environments where it seems like cooperation is most likely to not occur without government – oftentimes the stakes are much higher. And so I think it's not surprising from an economic perspective that people would take 
extra steps, extra creative steps, I should say, to try and resolve those problems. And they do so with a, a great deal of success. Now, so the, the, let me bring it back to the book for a moment. The third part of the book examines the question of how does self-governance function relative to a government? Um, so even if we could demonstrate, you know, as I think I, I and others have, that self-governance can provide some degree of cooperation, the natural next question is, well, well, is that better or worse than what government does? And I think a big part of the answer to begin to at least provide an answer to that question is to understand what most governments in the world look like. So people who live in North America and Western Europe have a very one-sided and, and basically unrepresentative view of, of how government looks and operates in most of the world. Most of the world's governments are not like, you know, the government of the United States or the government in Switzerland. They much more closely resemble, you know, the governments of the Democratic Republic of Congo or, you know, Tunisia or, or somewhere else that, that that's, that's uh, we don't typically associate with being highly functional. And it's, it's precisely in those kinds of contexts where I think the importance of appreciating self-governance's capacity to provide cooperation relative to government comes to the fore. And that is because even if self-governing institutions in general are not capable of providing as much cooperation as, say, a what I call a first best government, so a government that's similar to one that we observe in, in North America or Western Europe, even if, if self-governance can't do that, if it can provide more cooperation than the level of cooperation that's provided by the highly dysfunctional governments that, in fact, characterize most of the world's countries, we have a strong reason, perhaps, from a normative perspective for preferring self-governance to the state in, say, the developing world. So would there be a problem regarding public goods, then, in this type of situation? Because... If people are paying taxes to a government or a central government, they may use that then to defend themselves against a possible external attack or for a cleanup where there might be a nuclear disaster or a natural disaster. How would situations like that occur? Would people naturally cooperate and give an equal share in order to solve certain problems? Probably not. So I, you know, again, I don't, I don't think about it in terms of what would happen naturally. The, the way that I think about it is, first of all, let's, let's, we, we have to clarify the, the population in question. So let's suppose that we are considering the population in, say, Somalia uh, back in 1989 or 1990, before Somalia's government collapsed. The first question I would ask about public goods is, well, how was that government in that particular country in that particular society, how effective was it at providing public goods? The answer, it turns out, was extraordinarily ineffective. So government provided very little of what we would ordinarily call public goods. And what public goods it did provide, it typically used in a in a manner that did not that was not promoting the interests of society in general, but instead promoting the political class, you know, the the ruler and and some of his cronies. So Having established that as the benchmark for how a really existing government in the world, which, as I mentioned before, is similar to many governments in the world, how it provides public goods, then the benchmark would be, okay, how does self-governance provide public goods relative to that government? And because the government in that particular case did such a poor job of providing public goods, even if you didn't expect self-governance to be very effective at providing them, it, stay, it still may be able to provide them 
in a superior way, in a better way, compared to what existed under government. Does that logic, am I clear, am I being clear enough on that logic? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I can see the situation there whereby a government can be very, very ineffective. Right. Yeah. Peter, you are doing work currently on superstition. And I suppose it's like I'm looking at a paper right now, Superstition and Self-Governance, and which you've written with Paolo Suarez. Mm-hmm. And this is a something that you're going to branch into in order to look at the economics of superstition. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually uh, right now finishing up a, a book that's going to address it, that sort of brings together in a in a manner that is is will be, you know, friendly and amenable to a, a lay reader, similar to what I did with the invisible hook. And is this something that kind of tests the scientific nature of economics in mathematical terms? For example, we had type one and type two errors and people who are quite superstitious could have those type of errors and their beliefs. And this is something that you try to resolve. Well, I sort of, I try and look at it at a little bit more of a macro level rather than an individual decision-making level. So the way, I, the way I sort of look at it is if you look throughout the world, especially in the developing world, but uh, the world over, people hold a large variety of scientifically false beliefs. And a puzzle is why people hold these views, right? I mean, I mean if you look at, at surveys on superstitions, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, the average country, more than 50% of the population believes in witchcraft. You know, in the United States, you've got uh, a quarter of people who believe in astrology. There's a whole host of, of sort of scientifically false beliefs that people adhere to. And what I want to do, one approach to, to, to the fact that people hold these beliefs is to simply write them off as irrational. And I think that that's largely what a kind of traditional, well, maybe that's not the right word to use, but a behavioral economics approach might do. And that is the opposite, in a sense, of what I'm trying to do. What I want to do is to use rational choice theory to understand how it is that these superstitions come to be and persist. And my argument is that oftentimes they are socially productive. They perform functionalist roles that permit governance institutions to work better. And that's why they emerge and that's why they persist. So I'm looking at it at a kind of broader political economy level to see how they interact with institutions oftentimes to make those institutions work better. And when you talk about institutions, you're talking about government institutions or farms at a macro level? I'm talking about government institutions, but also self-governing institutions. So, you know, for instance, in the United States, although it's not not so popular now, but in the United States, Bible swearing in courtrooms uh, used to be very, very common. Uh, That practice, that institution, which is leveraged by our legal system, is based on an idea which is supported by the survey data on people's beliefs. This is based on the idea that if you don't tell the truth, that there is some divine punishment uh, in store for you down the road. That is a superstition which is leveraged by our legal system, and I think has for quite obvious reasons, right? I mean, conditional on some people believing that God will smite them if they don't tell the truth in a courtroom, you are more likely to elicit honest testimony by having people swear on a Bible. So that would be an example of of superstition being leveraged by a governmental institution to promote the the functioning of the institution and society more generally. In the developing world, for instance, in, in Liberia, where government institutions are very dysfunctional, you find a much broader role for superstition, often in legal institutions again, um, but 
because government is dysfunctional, these superstitions are typically used to make private judicial institutions more effective. So one of the institutions that I've examined along these lines in Liberia is called Sassywood, which is a, a trial by ordeal whereby an accused criminal is asked to imbibe a poisonous, uh, ostensibly poisonous concoction, which it, the belief underlying this is that the concoction is made from the poison of this tree called a sasswood tree. And Liberian belief holds that spirits inhabit this, uh, this poisonous material if a priest says certain incantations over it. And so if you imbibe it, based on your reaction to the poison, you learn whether or not, which the spirit is supposedly doing, you learn whether or not the person is telling the truth or not. So what I examine there is how that superstition and the ju private judicial institutions of Liberians built around it, in fact, promote effective fact-finding and criminal justice in an environment where the state is basically not around to do that effectively. When you say superstition, Daryl, and you're talking about finding out the truth, we, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this episode are aware of the Spanish Inquisition, whereby they tested to see if a certain individual, male or female, was a witch, and they would put them in the water, and if they drowned they weren't a witch and if they rose to the top alive they they are a witch but this kind of superstition is quite prominent in some african countries and i've come across recently an article of a a boy a young boy possibly no older than six years of age being casted out of his own family and his own society because they all believed he was a witch yeah, I mean, so witch beliefs, which is something else I've, I've written on, which have there's many dimensions to witch beliefs and different societies hold very different views about about witches. So in Liberia, for example, there are strong witch beliefs, but those witch beliefs are very different from the witch beliefs that prevailed in, for example, early modern Europe, um, you know, the, the famous great age of European witch trials. And those beliefs are in turn very different from the beliefs in witchcraft among, for instance, the Azande society in Africa. Part of what I argue is that witch beliefs, like other superstitions, end up taking on particular characteristics in order to fill in gaps in, in state-provided governance or to facilitate private governance more effectively. So there's not, while there's this temptation to sort of have a one-size-fits-all with respect to witch beliefs or other superstitions, a key part, I think, of my findings is that they're very different, and their differences in different societies reflect the different solutions that are needed because of the different particular problem scenarios that those societies confront. And how, how would this relate to economics? Is this due to rational choice theory? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's a, a couple of different ways that it relates to economics, but but the first is, is, is simply using, so the, again, the analytical engine here is, is rational choice theory. We want to understand how it is, or I want to understand how it is that such beliefs could emerge and persist in societies of rational people. So not, not people who make, who uh, systematically err, not people who are, who are crazy or irrational, but rather rational people. So it's a sort of, it's an extension more broadly of this, this project of, of economic imperialism that Mises pioneered and Gary Becker was a part of, and I very much want to, you know, contribute to. So I think that's the that's the the primary way. The secondary way is that it, it's a contribution or it attempts to contribute to political economy, whereby we want to understand the variety of institutions that emerge and function or don't function, basically to facilitate political economic interactions more generally. Peter, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me in Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Share it again with our listeners where they can find you. 
Oh, PeterLeeson.com is, uh, is my website, and all my, uh, my papers are up there, and you can find out more information through that website as well. You can find all the links to Peter on economicrockstar.com forward slash Peter Leeson. Peter, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. You are an economic rockstar. Well, thank you so much for having me. Look, thanks very much for taking time out. Uh, really appreciate it. Love reading your stuff, and I can't wait to get that book, Anarchy Unbound. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Frank. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Peter.